I was a member of the Sullivanians from 1973 to 1979. My involvement inextricably altered my life, and this hour-and-a-half podcast tells the events of my life and chronicles my involvement and the aftermath. The collapse of the group has been documented before in several news and magazine articles, a dissertation, and most recently, a book, but never a first-person accounting, and this is what you will hear on this podcast. An artist since I was a child, later earning a master's from Brooklyn College with a passion for writing poetry, the genesis of this podcast began over 10 years ago when I wrote a memoir. Years passed as I tried to shop the book, but couldn't find neither an agent nor a publisher. The book languished on my computer, and then, with the advent of iMovie, I used my memoir as the scaffolding for a documentary that became an official selection of New Filmmakers New York 2020 and a Spotlight Documentary Bronze Award winner 2020 for artistic merit. When this creative journey began, the Sullivanians were largely forgotten, except perhaps by the several hundred former members, 500 at its zenith, many of whom, like myself, survived the control wrought by the Institute and therapists that 40 years later still resonate and begs to be heard. The full documentary can be seen on my YouTube channel, Shell Fine One. Thank you. Even, even though New York State had recently adopted a law that allowed abortion on demand, I was having difficulty finding a doctor. In the end, it was Rachel's mother, through her family physician, who found Dr. Lowenthal. He was already in position at the end of the examination table when I padded into the room in nothing but my white socks and cotton gown, holding it tightly wrapped around my body. Get on the table, he positively barked with detachment. I did this, the paper crackling beneath me. Move down to the edge of the table and place your legs in the stirrups. I was barely 23 and could probably count my visits to the gynecologist on one hand at this point, and those visits were under much friendlier circumstances. I zoned out, finding the cracks in the wall as Dr. Lowenthal reached his surgically gloved fingers into my vagina, and soon the brief humiliation was over. He straightened up, and as he pulled off the gloves, dropping them into the trash receptacle, he directed me to sit up. I did as I was told, and moments later, my mother was escorted into the room by the tight-lipped nurse with her starched white cap professionally perched at the crown of her head, unruly red tendrils struggling to get free. My mother sat on an upholstered chair while I remained on the exam table, feet dangling, shivering slightly in the cool room. The procedure you're asking for is now called a termination of pregnancy, Dr. Lowenthal said beginning to explain the procedure. Because of how long you waited, it's more complicated. I will need to insert saline into the uterus, he continued, icicles forming on his every word. I didn't wait exactly, I interrupted, rubbing my arms, the thin cotton gown offering little protection. I'm not really interested in the reasons. It doesn't really matter, dear, he said in clipped tones. Now, please let me finish, young lady. I have other appointments. As I was saying, a rubber glove-like device will be inserted into the uterus and filled with saline. 
The saline is then released through the fingers. My mother's hand moved to her throat. She wouldn't be silenced by this arrogant doctor, and she interrupted him. It sounds dangerous. Isn't there another way, she asked, as she stood to place her coat over my shoulders? As I have already explained, Mrs. Feldman, is it, he asked? It's too late to terminate any other way. Of course, there's always a risk, but this will be done in a hospital and by an experienced doctor. I usually do these um, procedures on Friday. That's two days from now. My receptionist will help you fill out the necessary papers. My mother and I arrived at Booth Memorial Hospital at 7 o'clock a.m. for the procedure. The baggy-eyed receptionist, probably near the end of her shift, directed us to the waiting area diagonally across the crowded lobby. I dragged my suitcase over and we sat down. The coffee shop and newsstand were open for business, but I wasn't allowed to eat or drink, so I went to get a paper and a coffee for my mother. Ten minutes later, the flower shop unlocked the doors, and that's when I noticed the man in the wheelchair wearing blue sterile garb, a mask hung loosely around his neck, moving quickly down the hospital corridor in our direction. It was only when he pivoted to a stop before me that I recognized Dr. Lowenthal. He slowly rolled to where my mother was sitting. I followed behind him, aware of the shock and disbelief evident on my mother's face, as if she had seen someone set on fire. When I reached her side, she grabbed onto me for support. Did you check in, young lady, Dr. Lowenthal asked, ignoring or oblivious to my mother's horrified expression. We were told to wait for you here, she answered in barely a whisper. Okay, dear, he said to me, you go back to the front desk. We'll do it all there, and I will see you in the operating room. When Dr. Lowenthal was safely out of earshot, his wheelchair disappearing quickly down the hall, my mother turned to me and asked, did you know he was crippled? No, how could I know? I do remember he was already positioned at the end of the table when I came into the exam room for the internal. And then, of course, he never moved from the spot. You remember, you were there, too. We left him behind when we left the room. It's not too late, Cora. You could have the baby and live with me. We could raise it together. I couldn't do that, Mom. Cora, he's crippled. He still has his hands, Mom. Please, help me. Please, just go. Don't worry. It'll be fine. I'll call you later. I kissed her cheek and she gathered her coat and pocketbook and left. A nurse escorted me upstairs. I noticed the hospital walls were marked with red arrows as we moved through the corridor, one to the next, like a game of Piggly Wiggly, before we finally reached my room. I stepped inside with uncertainty and sat on the edge of the chair, hugging myself to ward off the chill and unnatural light of the room. The window bed was occupied by a young woman who was propped up against a mound of pillows, her long brown hair braided and tied with a white satin ribbon. Hi there, she said cheerfully, turning in my direction. I'm Paula, and I'm still waiting. Before I could figure out her elliptical statement, a nurse with a large winged hat sitting atop her tight top knot came into the room, pushing a small metal cart. You're Feldman, right? She asked, checking her papers. I have to prep you. Then she handed me a white hospital gown and pulled the curtain around the bed. What do you mean prep? I have to shave your pubic hair, dear. All of it? Nobody told me that. Didn't someone explain the procedure to you? I have to give you a mini prep before you have the saline inserted, okay? Now, slip the gown on with the opening to the front and climb onto the bed.
I turned away from the nurse and quickly slipped off my jeans and green sweater, making a neat pile on the chair. The doctor didn't tell me about being shaved. What happens after that, I asked, climbing onto the bed and trying to ignore the riot her words were inciting within me. Open the gown for me, dear, and I'll explain while I soap you up. She picked up a mug and shaving brush, added water, and quickly whipped the soap into a lather. She then spread the frothy mix on my pubic hair like she was frosting a cupcake, picked up the straight-edged razor, and deftly scraped away my pubic hair. The end result left me as hairless as a 10-year-old. There you go. So, to answer your questions, in a little while, you're going to be wheeled to the operating room for the procedure. You know about that, right? Yes. Fine. Hold still for me, dear. One more second. There. Then she patted me dry. She was smiling, proud of her handiwork. Okay, you can sit up. Now, where was I? Oh, yes. After the saline is inserted, you will wheel back down here to wait. During that period... Once you're back here, you can't get off the bed because once the labor pains begin, if you get up, it stops the procedure, and even if they get too bad, you just have to hold on as long as you can. If we give you a sedative too soon, it could stop the fetus from aborting, and we'll have to start all over again. I don't understand. Dr. Lowenthal mentioned none of this to me. Real labor pains? I don't understand. Well, he was supposed to explain. The labor pains happen as a result of the saline. Your body aborts the fetus like giving birth, and that pain can be mighty fierce. I lay on the operating table, trussed up like a chicken, my feet strapped into the stirrups, an intravenous drip hanging from my right arm, and an arctic wind blowing up my legs. There were two nurses. The taller one with skinny lips had strapped my arm down to find a good vein. The other, dark skinned with short stubby fingers, had pushed my legs apart and strapped my feet into the metal stirrups. Excuse me, I said, trying to lift my head. Does it have to be this cold in here? The nurse with skinny lips stopped in her tracks and speaking in a raspy voice said, Did you say something, hon? But before she could answer, Dr. Lowenthal was wheeled into the room and positioned at the end of the table, gloved hands in the air. Where's my money, young lady? He yelled through the green sterile mask, his abrasive voice loud and clear. I tried to lift my head again, but I couldn't. My mother has it, I yelled back. Remember, you told her to leave a while ago. Okay, okay, okay. Never mind, he said, annoyed. I'll get it later. Now, let's get started. The sooner we start, the sooner we'll finish. This should take all of 15 minutes from start to finish, but you have to hold still, very still. At this point, the dark-skinned nurse locked Dr. Lowenthal into place, and he immediately got to work, pushing the cold stainless steel specula into my vagina without even a dab of lubricant, and I flinched with pain. Hold still, young lady. Hold still, young lady, he said again. I shifted my gaze to the wall clock, a large, standard, round, institutional clock with a white face and large Roman numerals. And for the next 15 minutes, it became the only thing in the room that I cared about. As the instruments clinked between my legs, I concentrated on its long, thin hour hand and sweeping red minute hand, hoping sudden kinetic powers would force them to move faster. But instead, the clock, the clock swelled to the size of a Macy's Thanksgiving Day balloon, filling the room, the numbers floating above me like a dolly painting.
For a while, I was outside myself, watching the parade, and then my attention was brought painfully back to the space between my thighs. My right leg spasmed in the stirrup and began to shake. It was getting colder, and I was still sweating. Cry me a river, cry me a river. I cried a river over you. Was I fucking singing? I looked at the clock, the clock again. Six more minutes to go, and just when I thought the pain couldn't get much worse, my uterus ignited a prolonged, searing pain that reached up through my legs to the depths of my belly and breast, ripping at my uterus. It was a pain too intense for tears. A low plaintive wail began, rising from somewhere inside the room, but all I could see was the top of Dr. Lowenthal's blue surgical cap and his hands working feverishly. You'll have to quit making that noise, young lady. You're distracting me. I looked at the clock again, but the pain pulled me back to the table. Jesus, what is he doing? He's cutting my flesh. I'm supposed to have anesthesia. Stop. He has to stop now. God, please stop him. Make him stop. He never mentioned cutting. He's a fucking sadist. He never told me about the pain. I can't do this anymore. And in that exact moment, Dr. Lowenthal snapped off his gloves, just like he was shooting rubber bands, and exclaimed proudly, 15 minutes exactly. Now that wasn't so bad, was it, young lady? Paula was gone when they wheeled me back to my room. And after the orderlies transferred me to the bed, I clicked on the tiny bedside TV and the voices droned on as I fitfully slept. It was dark outside the window when I was sharply awakened by the first contraction in my lower back. By midnight, they were everywhere. A single light glowed above my bed as my entire body violently contracted. No matter, <clears throat> no matter which way I turned, right side or left, sitting up or lying down, I couldn't get away from the pain. And in my head, I was singing again. Cry me a river, cry me a river. I cried a river over you. Through it all, I was mindful of the nurse's warning. So I stayed in the bed and held on to the sides of the mattress, bargaining with myself. Five more minutes, maybe one, maybe none. And then I screamed for help. The night nurse, a pug-nosed woman with bright rouge cheeks, sauntered slowly to my bedside as though she were about to fix a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for one of her grandchildren. She took my arm and tapped the vein twice with her fingertips. Wasn't worth it now, was it, dearie? Then she administered a shot of sodium pentothal into the IV, finally sending me to a glorious pain-free world. The tape recorder clicked off automatically and the plastic cover popped up, sliding the cassette up and out. The label read, History Tape 4, Abortion. It was the last tape.